This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer Worldwide. I'm Bob Comsick for Libby's Nimer. Coming up, would you consider taking a cheek swab test to determine if you carry a gene that could indicate a higher risk for Alzheimer's? And when Gord Downey died last October, a country mourned. Some have called the tragically hip the most Canadian rock band ever. I speak with the author of a new biography about Gore Downey and his band of brothers. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Some generic prescription drugs just got a lot cheaper for Canadians. Beginning last Monday, the prices of 70 commonly prescribed generic drugs have gone down, in some cases up to 40% less compared to their brand-name equivalent. It's all thanks to Quebec, where lawmakers, frustrated by escalating health plan costs, forced generic companies to submit tenders for the most commonly prescribed medications. Big Pharma panicked and agreed to lower prices rather than a bidding process. Patients will see savings when they fill prescriptions for meds for blood pressure, cholesterol, and more, whether it's through a public or employee plan or paying out of pocket. It's tax season, and police are warning the public, and seniors in particular, about a possible phone tax scam. In Kingston, police there say a number of seniors reported getting calls from people claiming to be from Canada Revenue Agency. In one case, police were able to stop a senior who was about to buy and send thousands of dollars worth of iTunes gift cards. The CRA says taxpayers need to be vigilant when they get fraudulent emails or calls from someone claiming to be from the agency and to never give out sensitive information such as social insurance, credit card, or bank account numbers. An American study suggests having a big financial setback could take some years off your life. It found that middle-aged people who experienced a sudden large economic blow were more likely to die during the following years than those who did not. The heightened danger of death after a devastating loss, which researchers called a wealth shock, crossed socioeconomic lines. The study underscores the connection between money and well-being. And boxing nuns are taking Poland by storm by showing their fighting spirit in a new YouTube video dressed in full veil and habit. The ten nuns are seen shadow boxing and skipping rope making a boxer's workout part of their strict daily schedule. The nuns run an orphanage that's in dire need of major renovations. The social media-savvy nuns realize in this day and age, if you need help, you need to be noticed. So they posted this tongue-in-cheek boxing video to attract more donations. And as of late March, they had raised about one-third of the $88,000 goal. I'm Bob Comsick in for Libby's Nimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. 25,000 new cases of Alzheimer's are diagnosed every year in this country, 
Doctors and researchers on the front lines are doing everything to reverse this alarming stat, including a new test now being used here in Toronto. I spoke with Dr. Sharon Cohen, medical director of the Toronto Memory Program, about potential breakthroughs in treatments. We are now at the stage where we have prevention studies for Alzheimer's disease, and this is pretty new. Up until a few years ago, it was really a burden carried by people who were already rather frail and affected by the disease, going into clinical trials, hoping to get symptom improvement. But now, with our understanding that changes in the brain happen decades before symptoms, we have a window of opportunity to enroll people in prevention studies. And what does that mean for Alzheimer's disease? It means if you are in a higher risk category by virtue of genetic risk factors, you can go into a prevention study. If you have amyloid plaque accumulating in your brain, you can go into a prevention study. And again, this is very exciting because here we're not trying to play catch up with an injured brain. We're trying to keep healthy people healthy. Now, do you still need any patients or you have the patients for the study? Recruitment for the studies are ongoing and the faster we can recruit, the sooner we will get an answer as to whether these amyloid lowering approaches will change the face of Alzheimer's and prevent people from getting the symptoms of the disease. If someone is listening, they think that they might have an issue or a loved one does. Take us through what it is that you're going to expect for the study. What do they have to go through for this study? So we know people who are getting into their late 50s, early 60s and beyond often have mild forgetfulness. And the question arises, is this just normal for age or is this the beginning of something more sinister? That can be hard to figure out. And people who have a loved one, a family member, it could be a parent, could be a sibling, who has been affected by Alzheimer's disease often put themselves under a microscope and are more sensitized to the possibility that mild forgetfulness may represent something more. One of the first steps that we may decide to do is a cheek swab. And here we're going to measure within an hour or so whether they carry a risk factor gene for Alzheimer's disease. And that's an APOE gene that comes as APOE4 in the risk version, the high-risk version. And if you have one copy of APOE4 you have three times higher risk of developing Alzheimer's. If you have two copies of APOE4, you have 10 times higher risk. You may still never develop Alzheimer's, but you're sure in a high-risk category, and it makes sense if there are prevention studies to try the interventions on people in this higher-risk group. So we get an APOE result. That allows people to join a study geared at lowering amyloid plaque in people who are at high risk. That would be one route. Another study considers the risk factor, the major risk factor, to be age over 60 and having amyloid protein accumulating in the brain. So a PET scan would actually be the way we would be able to tell whether amyloid plaque is building up. These studies are studies to ultimately give people at risk an amyloid-reducing agent, either a drug that blocks production of amyloid, and we can block it by about 80%, so very dramatically turn off the brain's production of amyloid. And we can also draw amyloid out of the brain by promoting antibodies that tackle amyloid. How long might participants be part of the either study, whether it's the swab or the, or the scan? Right, so four and a half to five years would be the ballpark. Trials may get shorter, prevention studies may get shorter as we validate lowering of amyloid 
as a outcome measure. Right now, we have to go by cognitive testing, but if we are able over the next years, a couple of years, to show that lowering amyloid predicts better outcome for people, then we might be able to move endpoints such that you see a scan is going in the right direction, and that might be enough to lead to approval of a prevention study. Very exciting. It is. And so you still have to get approval, and that's still years away before this can become more commonplace. That's right. Once these studies are completed, if they show the results that we hope, that people who are at risk don't progress to Alzheimer's disease, then there will be a huge desire to get these drugs approved on the market and available because so many of us are at risk. We're living longer. Uh, you know, People are living into their 80s, 90s. Lots of people are turning 100. We don't want people to develop Alzheimer's disease. But people who are at risk now may well want to get a, a head start and not wait you know, several years until we get results, but do something now. And they will hopefully do something for themselves, but also move the end of the studies forward so that everybody can have access. And I guess you've got the hope that one day there's going to be positive results that will lead to these preventative steps being out on the market. We are very hopeful. When you look at other areas of medicine, prevention is so key. We don't wait till people have heart attacks. We treat high blood pressure. We treat high cholesterol. It's not any different in Alzheimer's disease. We just haven't had enough of the scientific underpinnings to detect amyloid or to do these cheek swabs and get rapid APOE results. And now we're better positioned to tackle Alzheimer's from a prevention standpoint. So I always say to my staff and my, you know, when I speak at community events, it's not a matter of if, it's really when. And people participating in studies can help move this along faster. Well, fingers crossed the day comes sooner rather than later. Absolutely, for all of our sakes. Dr. Cohen, thank you. My pleasure. That was Dr. Sharon Cohen, Medical Director of the Toronto Memory Program. And for more information, you can go online to torontomemoryprogram.com. I'm Bob Comsick for Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, why the tragically hip is so important to this country's identity. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. After tragically hip frontman Gord Downey announced his terminal cancer diagnosis, the hip hit the road one final time in the summer of 2016. Remarkably, more than a third of Canadians watched the band's final concert broadcast from their hometown Kingston. Michael Barkley is the author of a new biography called The Never-Ending Present about the band's enduring legacy in this country. I think it needed to be written and had not been written up to this point in time. And this is a band with a 30-year career and uh, a band with a lot of obsessive fans. And as we discovered during the summer of 2016, this was a story that the whole country was interested in, even if you didn't like their music. Uh, what happened that summer with Gord Downey's diagnosis and the uh, the final tour uh, really rallied Canadians around this story uh, for a lot of reasons. When did you say that you had to write it? Was it in 2016 during... The last tour? No, I had no idea. The response to that tour really surprised me. As someone who had been a fan since the very beginning, 
but I didn't really expect the tidal wave of emotion, the, the, the way that the entire country rallied. And it made international headlines. This was not just a Canadian story because nobody in the history of showbiz had done this before. I think when you look at the strata of Canadian society that they touched, this was not just a rock band with a couple of hits on the radio that get played all the time on classic rock radio. So they mentored generations of Canadian musicians, like three decades, like some new bands today, like July Talk or the Arkells. Like these are people they took under their wing. The people who are now headlining Massey Hall for the first time, they owe direct debt to the Tragic Clip, as do, uh, you know, the Sky Diggers and Eric's Trip and the Rio Statics. And, and so there's that. Then there's the direct connection to hockey because they're not just fans. They're deeply involved in hockey culture. They sponsored a women's team in Kingston. They've you know gone to a lot of the Olympics and, and supported the teams there. They have personal connections going back to Kingston days with people like Doug Gilmore. Then there's the poets and Gordani's personal connection to many poets in this country. And then there's the filmmakers like Sarah Pauly. Like all these people pop up through their story and you realize how connected they are to every corner of the country and every level of culture on this country. A lot of names there that people will recognize. What about people, Canadians, such as the ones listening to us speak right now about the book? You know, when you write a book, you're not supposed to think about what your mom thinks. <laughs> you're supposed to, the adage is, you know, just write for yourself. But I, you know, my parents uh, don't care about the tragedy. This was news to them that this was a popular band, you know, and their friends, they're, my parents are in their 70s. But I watched all of their friends also get caught up in the story because they've all been touched by cancer. But I also really wanted to speak quite broadly about what it means to be a musician in this country, what it means to age as a musician in this country, where there's a glass ceiling of success for a lot of Canadian artists, what it means to be in a rock band in your 50s with guys you started with when you were 16, you know? These are the same five guys. This is also unprecedented in rock and roll history with very few exceptions like U2 or Radiohead or ZZ Top. Those are the only three other bands that I could find that sold millions of records and had the same people on the very first record who played the last show. People saw like how close they were and how the energy that Gore Downey needed from his very close friends to summon the will to deliver that kind of performance. What was it about the late Gord Downey in the hip that made them, sorry, hip. I think they came around at a very interesting time in the late 80s. Rock and roll was very different. It was mutating. It was evolving. Uh, they grew up loving kind of garage rock from the 60s, and their records sounded unlike anything else in the 80s. 80s, there were a lot of synthesizers and drum machines, and I love a lot of that music too, but the, the hip just jumped out of the radio. It was like, whoa, this sounds like a band playing in a room. You can hear the amp buzz. You can hear the attack on the snare drum. And it just, it didn't sound like anything else. And they also had that multi-generational appeal built in from the very beginning as well for that reason. What's amazing too is that the audience still remained young. I mean, there's a cliche that the Tragically Hip fan is, you know, between the age of 40 and 55, but not really. There's people older than that and there's people younger. The audience was regenerating as well. So as, you know, for some Fairweather fans kind of dropped off, uh, there were always new people in and, and people who heard it through their parents the same way, you know, people my age heard the Beatles or the Stones from their parents or CCR. Like, there's just this continuum. And part of the reason I titled the book The Never Ending Present is because all this music is always present in our lives. You could have never heard of the Tragically Hip. You could dip into their entire discography tomorrow and it would be very present. Michael, what's the lesson you came away from from writing this? And would it be the same one that the person listening now would likely get after reading it? I think so. I think it would be to surround yourself with people you love, people you trust, stay true to your vision. This was a band who was very tightly involved in every decision, uh, part of their success is because they really did build a firewall around them. 
and also just to work hard. This was an incredibly working band for most of their career. They put out a new album every two years and touring and like very little time off. We're never really interested in playing the same hits over and over again. I mean, a lot of people would be happy if they only ever played their first three records constantly, but they continue to produce new material. Their last album, I thought, was one of their best. One story that runs through all the press clippings I found was people talked about, you know, this weird thing about Gore Downing and the Tragically Hip is they always do the dishes. Every house party, every, like, they showed up at the Kingston Week Standard to do an interview, and then someone offers them coffee, and at the end of the interview, they all get up and clean the dishes. And I think that metaphor really speaks to their humility and their work ethic and their egalitarianism. So, like, the opening bands would all tell me that Everybody was equal. Everybody got the star treatment from like the roadie to the opening band to the lighting guy. Um, They're all in it together. It was a team. As we go out here, what's your favorite hip song? Well, there are many, but one I kept coming back to was their very first single. Uh, the song is called Blow It High Dough, and the chorus is, uh, they were very successful right away with this very first record. And the chorus of that first song is, uh, sometimes the faster it gets, the less you need to know but the smarter it gets, the further it's going to go. And that, to me, sums up who they were. That was Michael Barkley, author of the new biography about the tragically hip called The Never-Ending Present. I'm Bob Comsick for Libby's Nimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up... One half of pop duo Hall & Oates celebrating a milestone birthday this weekend... You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Bob Comsick in for Libby Zneimer. Time now for your International Arts Datebook. Tips for those of you jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In Venice, Italy, a museum has opened dedicated to the world's greatest lover. The Casanova Museum and Experience recounts not only Casanova's sexual conquests, but tells the story of the man who was a soldier, spy, linguist, philosopher, and poet. Canada is one of the contributing countries to a retrospective on Eugène Delacroix, one of the giants of French painting, now on at the Louvre in Paris. Tate Modern in London is staging its first ever solo exhibition of Pablo Picasso's work 45 years after his death. It's called Picasso 1932, Love, Fame, Tragedy. And in Los Angeles... More than 150 stunning treasures from King Tut's tomb have gone on display at the California Science Center, running through the end of the year. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. American singer-songwriter John Oates celebrating his 70th birthday this weekend. As a journalism student back in the late 60s, he met fellow student and musician Daryl Hall. The two went on to form the iconic duo Hall & Oates. Together, they wrote a number of hit songs, including Rich Girl, She's Gone, and I Can't Go For That. These writing credits earned John Oates an induction into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2004. And a decade later, both Hall and Oates were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The duo still going strong, kicking off a North American tour in just a few weeks, and will make a stop at Toronto's ACC in June. Here's one of their many hits, You Make My Dreams.
That was Holland Oates with You Make My Dreams. John Oates turning 70 this weekend. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Bob Comsick for Libby's Nimer. Thanks for joining me. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. Produced by Christine Ross, Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.